This is the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. I'm your show host, Abel, and this time you're going to hear my legendary episode number two, where I interviewed Eric Helms. So this was actually back in the old days where I was fishing for the attention of all these amazing fitness experts to come on my YouTube channel and give me an interview. And Eric Helms was actually kind and supportive enough to take the time and he actually ended up giving me an interview that went over an hour. And so this is the interview you'll hear in this episode. So, I mean, Eric, I think he needs no introduction really, but he is a competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. He is, at the time of this interview, was a PhD candidate, but by the time you hear this interview, he may actually have gotten his PhD already. He is a member of the 3DMJ coaching team, where they coach drug-free bodybuilders and powerlifters. He has also authored two amazing books, The Muscle and Strength Nutritional and Training Pyramids, which outline how you can create and structure your nutrition and training plan by implementing the most important science-based aspects of both. He's for sure one of the smartest, most knowledgeable, and certainly most successful people in the fitness industry, and basically every word of his is just golden. In this episode, we talked about aspects of training and how to think about the implementation of training volume and progressive overload, the psychology of contest prep dieting, as well as the whole debate and controversy around steroid use in bodybuilding and physique sports. This has to date been my most popular podcast episode, even though at the time my interviewing skills were definitely needing lots of improvement, but man, did Eric deliver on this podcast. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. You can also download the mp3 on my website, which is susdvc.com podcast. That is susdvc.com podcast. And if you like this episode, please leave a rating. And without further ado, let's go to this interview with Lord Helms. Okay, so with Eric Helms. You know, I was I was just thinking about what kind of intro I would give to you. And I was just thinking that if I had some cousin or someone who would tell me that, you know, I, I just want to start lifting weights and it's just so much information on the internet, where should I go to? Then I would say that the five people in no particular order that had like... I guess the biggest influence on me in terms of getting good advice, it would be, I guess, Lyle McDonald, Lane Norton, Greg O'Gallagher that you just um, was on a call with recently, uh, Menno Hanselmans, and yourself. So it's, it's, it's a big moment for me. So with that said, actually, I know how you started out kind of as, as a typical kid, just trying to find a way to spend your frustrations and, you know, cope with your mental battles and stuff like that. And from there, you just arrived to the place that you are now being one of the most respected natural bodybuilders in the world. So how does that feel for you? Oh, that, that's a good question. Uh, I don't often get asked, how does it feel to, to be where I'm at from where I started? And um, well, first, I, I do want to say that I'm really just kind of like, you know, like internet famous in like a very small circle, you know, the... Um, like there's the fitness industry and then there's bodybuilding and then there's like natural bodybuilding. And um, it's it's very cool to be um, recognized and looked up to by your peers. And also at the same time, pretty intimidating and scary to be seen as a leader and someone who provides information. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always a little bit in shock uh, 
that I'm someone who is put on a list with like the people you just said. Because, for example, when I was coming up, um, I remember having having a similar list, and it was like, uh, you know, Lyle McDonald, Alan Aragon, uh, James Krieger, and like Lane Norton, and Dr. Joe Klimczewski. Some people might not know who that is. It was my like, my list. Um, so it is really weird to hear myself on the same list when it was only like 2009, 2010, where I was someone who had lists, not someone who was on lists. So I think it's uh, it's humbling. Um, it's an honor, and um, it is definitely intimidating at times because sometimes it feels as though uh, there's a lot of pressure. But I think a lot of the times I put that on myself. So it's just you kind of have to check in and um, kind of keep yourself sane. It's not exactly easy to be on display all the time as much as I might come across as comfortable with it. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, actually, it's, it's interesting. I, I wasn't going to go too much in, too long into this, but, but it's interesting that um, people who are really good at what they do are not necessarily good at teaching it to other people. So uh, what would you, would you say, because you're a power lifter, bodybuilder, would you say you're actually better, better at doing or better at, at teaching these things to other people? You know, there was a time when I would have said that I'm a much better doer rather than teacher. Um, but I had a few experiences um, that made me have to learn that skill very quickly. Um, so obviously, as a personal trainer, uh, which I was for, for years, you, you get pretty good at teaching on a one-on-one -on -one sense um, and teaching more the, the physical skills. And I guess it's more, more mentoring, you know. Um, but I did work for about a year and a half at, um, at a place called Bryan College. I think it's now called Bryan University in Sacramento, um, which is where I was from before I moved to New Zealand. Um, and they had a, a two-year, or rather an associate's degree program uh, for personal trainers to get. An associate's degree in the States is basically kind of like half a bachelor's. I guess it's kind of like an uh, undergrad diploma sort of thing. But anyway, so they had a, a degree program for personal trainers that I taught for. And they were in need of staff. So I got thrown into like, all right, Eric, you're going to go teach anatomy and physiology today. Are you going to teach these guys how to pass their exam? Just just go. And I was uh, at the tail end of finishing my bachelor's degree. So I was, I was learned, but I was not comfortable with the information. Um, and this was a time right around when the economy was starting to bounce back. So people had lost their jobs, but had enough money to go to school to try to get a different job in a market that wasn't destroyed, you know, like, so mm -hmm. I had a mixture of kids who, I call them kids because they were, you know, just out of high school who wanted to do be a personal trainer and also people who are in their, their 40s and 50s who are trying to, to retrain for a new, a new field. And um, being in my late 20s, um, I didn't really relate very well to either group. So I had to figure out a way to, to teach what I knew to people with a very different background. And I think being forced to do that and be kind of thrown to the wolves, it, it made me become a good teacher. I, I started out pretty bad, but uh, by the end, I was one of the more respected instructors and, and felt very confident what I was doing. I think it really made me become uh, skilled at what I do because there's no better way to learn than teaching. Because if you can explain a complex uh, topic in a way that someone who thinks very differently than you can get it, that's when you've really kind of looked at it from all angles. So. Uh, I would say now I'm a very good teacher, but I was not always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's you can definitely tell, or one definitely can definitely tell when listening to you in an interview that 
you know, your thoughts are just so like you can tell that you've talked about this stuff for a long time and you know it's kind of well practiced and you know you know you know your stuff and 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 I guess that's what people need to see from a coach uh, after all. And so I want to say, um, just before I jump into the big questions that I want to ask you, first off, um, you talked a lot about volume and progressive overload and which one is more important. And so uh, if you look at someone like Lane Norton or even yourself, you describe how, for example, in nutrition, there is a pyramid. Would you say that this hierarchy of importance is comparable uh, when we talk about training and we talk about volume versus, say, progressive overload? It's it's definitely murkier. Um, so I've got a, I do have a, a pyramid that I created because I am part of the Illuminati, you know. I do have a pyramid that I created for uh, the muscle and for, for training. And the way I conceptualized that was that adherence is most important. Uh, after that, it is volume, intensity, and frequency. Then it is progression, which is not the same thing as progressive overload, but rather when I say progression, I'm talking about your approach or plan for progression. Um, progressive overload is kind of almost a theme that encompasses everything. You know, If you're adding volume, that in a way is progressive overload, if you, if you think of it that way. It depends on what adaptation you're trying to get. That's the overload that you're progressing. Uh, and then after uh, progression becomes exercise selection, and then finally uh, we have uh, rest periods and tempo. So um, the way I conceptualize that, I think it makes sense, but I could easily see an argument where you make exercise selection a lot lower and you say, look, you know, if I'm a, I'm a power lifter, I'm an Olympic lifter, if I don't do the main lifts, I'm, I'm going to have a very poor chance of getting better at them. So therefore, they must, must be much more important. Or, uh, or perhaps that if I have uh, specific biomechanical needs or weaknesses in my physique that exercise selection becomes very important and if I don't use the right movements then I could uh, you know run into issues with, with things like that so you can more easily cre can create a logical argument that would make my pyramid look wrong um, then I think the nutritional pyramid stands more uh, clearly um, but you know in the way I describe the training pyramid um, I think it, it makes sense, but of course, if, if the context has changed, then it changes. So, the rationale for why I put volume, intensity, and frequency as a, a more important level of the pyramid than uh, progression uh, is because at a starting level, if you have appropriately established uh, the right volume, intensity, and frequency, you will see progress. It will simply occur. And you don't need to start thinking about complex approaches to progression or or progression schemes or uh, advanced periodization models until you get to a certain point. So that was my rationale for that. Um, but I, I, I wanted to emphasize that, that uh, I didn't put progressive overload as a level, rather I put it as, as progression because progressive overload is almost one of those like fundamental principles that needs to kind of be across the, the whole pyramid. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a much more complex and dicier topic to make into a pyramid, which is why it took me till this year to do it when I made the nutrition one a few years back. Yeah. Um, the the thing that I always wondered is, because um, you talked just that interview, Craig O'Gallagher, who, I mean, you know, looks incredible, has a program which is like a three-day split. And mainly the concept is, okay, just get as strong as you can on some big key movements while keep your body fat in check. There is another, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, called Mike Matthews. 
um, muscleforlife.com. He has a similar approach with a five-day split. And while it makes sense um, to me that one will, yeah, obviously, if you put 100 pounds in your bench and you stay lean, you will look better, of course. But always kind of that little volume junkie in me is wondering, like, okay, how much volume could I add um, without getting stronger necessarily at all and get benefit from it, you know? Mm. You, you would probably get some, but um, if you add a whole bunch of volume and you don't get stronger at all, I, I would think there's probably something that, that doesn't make sense about the program in most cases um, if you're starting from a low level of volume. And, and it's difficult to... When people talk about volume or, or intensity, I almost think they're creating a false paradigm because if you add 100 pounds to your bench, right, and if you do, do 3 by 10, the volume load, sets times reps times load, is way higher now that you're, you're benching more. So the point at which I think people need to start thinking about increasing volume, let's say they started with a minimalist approach as a beginner and just, you know, I've got, you know, a few sets and I'm just going to try to progress strength as long as possible and, and not until... Do I stop progressing strength? Do I increase volume? The reality is the whole time they're increasing volume, but at a certain point they've gotten to a place where the small ticks up in load isn't enough of an increase in volume, because it is an increase in volume if you're doing, say, 3 by 5 with 100 versus 3 by 5 with 200. Um, going to 205 in that instance may not be enough of a, of a, of a new stimulus to see growth or, or progress on the bar at a rate which is measurable. So at that point, that's when you need to start thinking about, okay, maybe I do four by five, or maybe I do two by five on that day and two by five on another day with the same movement. Um, and I make, you know, something like a 10 to 25% increase in, in my total number of sets or total volume load, depending on how you look at it. So they are, the reason I didn't have volume as its own pyramid level is because they're inter interdependent. You know, if, if you increase the frequency while leaving sets and reps static, right? You've doubled your volume, let's say if you're training once a week. Um, if you just get stronger, and you're making small increases in volume. If you add sets of reps, you're making increases in volume. So they, they're all, uh, you know, affect one another. So it's, it's uh, I'm not sure it's the, the right question to kind of go either I'm a volume guy or I'm an intensity guy. I'm either, you know, Mike Menser or I'm Arnold. I, I kind of think that um, there's a lot more shared between the two. They're both progressively overloading, you know, but they're, they're probably hanging out on the lower end of the effective volume spectrum or the higher end. Um, and, and the question of what's optimal is, it's probably somewhere in the middle in most cases. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. The thing that I always wondered is um, many people like to bash on high volume and, and they find that, okay, they've been doing giant sets, supersets, two hours in the gym every day, very high rep, you know, low rest periods, all that kind of stuff. And then they switch to more reasonable volume, taper back the volume a lot. And um, focusing on the key movements, I don't know, four to 10 rep range, etc. And then they see that they start to make consistent gains and their strength is starting shooting up and they keep on doing it for years, many times on end. So in that case, what do you think they're experiencing there? Well, if you're if they're if they're using a, a high volume approach like you described, where they're doing minimal rest periods, supersets, and giant sets, to me, I'm thinking like they're using 12 to 15 reps. They're they're resting short periods. They're doing like lateral raises. To me, it already sounds like a 
an approach that's missing some issues that doesn't have anything to do with, with volume is that if you're training only high repetitions, that is that requires you to do more volume to be on equal footing with uh, a more moderate or heavy load. You know, um, you know, for example, uh, there was a study by Campos in 2002 where they had a matched volume uh, of a group doing 20 to 28 repetition max, a group that did, uh, I think it was 9 to 11 rep maxes, and then 3 to 5 rep maxes. And the 3 to 5 and the 9 to 11 had almost identical level of muscle growth, while the 20 to 28 didn't. Um, and then in a, probably a more practical, like time-matched uh, study, Schoenfeld recently compared um, 25 to 35 RM versus 8 to 12. And similar amount of time, however, the 25 to 35 RM, you can imagine, did you know twice as many reps uh, or maybe three times as many reps and about twice the volume load. But the growth was the same. So, and the downside is that these guys are, were like throwing up and stuff. So you, you have to go to failure if you're going to do really high reps. You have to keep, you know, you don't have to, but if you keep your rest periods low, then you fatigue early. So it's almost kind of a, too much of a focus on fatigue and not enough focus on uh, progressive overload and progressive tension overload. Um, so if now if someone was going to say, oh, I went from a high volume program with the same intensity to a, a, a lower volume with the same intensity, then they might... They only they might get just a temporary benefit of a taper, progress for a while, then they might plateau, unless they were just way overdoing it, and then they came down to something more reasonable. But I, I've I wouldn't be surprised at all if somebody was doing some kind of silly flex magazine workout where they're doing you know giant sets with lateral raises and drop sets down from you know seventy percent of the one max to fifty percent. Uh, there's almost no component to them trying to get stronger. Uh, they're reducing their rest periods even more, so they have to use even lighter weights. You know, it's it's very, very, very unbalanced towards uh, metabolic fatigue, and, and probably not enough focused on um, mechanical tension. You know, so that that yeah. wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me at all. But I don't think it would have to do with what happened. The volume went away. Why did they progress? I think it was they were doing some fundamentally uh, suboptimal things in the first place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's. It, it's a fascinating topic, and and you know it's just so interesting because um, in nutrition, I mean, I'm sure you see this as that the internet is essentially a big battlefield of essentially how who can troll harder the other person with some mm. uh, opposing opinion, and in, in nutrition, the argument can go so far because you can present some pretty hard data like I lost this many pounds in this many weeks. You know, if 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 you think calories don't matter, well. Let's see who will get a six pack quicker. You know, it's it's a pretty quick thing, but muscle growth is just so slow that um, you can essentially troll however you want on the internet and present whatever ridiculous um, training plan that you want to. So it's it's kind of funny to to see. Yeah, so um, long as you as you find a way to create progressive overload, you you will progress, and it does become a question of what's more optimal. Um, and, and it's also about specificity. It depends on what you're trying to get to. Um, like if you, there are, there are divergent approaches that you see in Olympic lifting or powerlifting, but in the end, you've got everyone following a progressive plan using a few specific lifts and also doing accessories to some differing amount. And they're all lifting heavy. One might say, oh, you're lifting way heavier than me. Oh, you're Bulgarian. You're doing, you know, a uh, daily one RM and you're like, and you're only doing 85%, but it's like, it's all like 80% plus work. It's, it's definitely not light, you know? No one's hitting double-digit reps in, in powerlifting very often, unless it's accessory movements or an AMRAP or something like that. So, 
it's easier to see differences in the chest press machine for 10 reps at way far from failure, you know, and they saw a guy coming in doing a Bulgarian uh, powerlifting routine and another guy doing a Russian, they'd both just be like, oh, they're both powerlifters. That's, that's all it would be. Like they're doing heavy squad bench and deadlifts and, uh, and they're really strong, you know, but between yeah. them, they think they're totally different, but they're really not. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I think one beautiful point that you made the other day is um, how you, you cannot determine how advanced someone is compared to how that person compares to other people. You have to look at the relative, um, like relative to what he could achieve. And, mm. and, and it's, and, and that just brought to mind, it is kind of a totally random uh, thought, but it just brought to mind that many times when people are talking about what kind of training method, method they should follow or, um, they're not really interested in what's producing the absolute most amount of muscle growth. They're really interested in getting those first, you know, 30 pounds of muscle that you can put in, in your first few years of lifting as quickly as possible. That's really what they're interested in. So, yeah, that's very true. And, uh, I almost <laughs> like to me, it, kind of, it almost doesn't matter. So long as you're doing it like reasonably intelligently, um, a novice, you're going to be, a quote unquote intermediate anywhere from six months to two years, unless you're just doing something really ridiculous, you know? Um, and you know, because I work with primarily competitive powerlifters and bodybuilders, I'm almost always dealing with someone who is past that novice stage, you know, where, where you think about, you know, loading the movement every single time you do it heavier instead of, you know, doing an undulating thing or, or weekly progression even, which is more of kind of a, you know, a, you know, you know, you're intermediate. So, yeah, I almost think I love the, I understand why it happens. I remember being a beginner and I was extremely motivated. I was very overzealous. I wanted to do everything super up, super optimal, but I think I was just wasting my time most of the time because simply working hard and being in the gym consistently, just like everybody else, I got to the, the intermediate stage within six months, you know, progression slowed down. I put on my first 20 pounds in six months and then it was a lot slower and it was it was really no different than most other you know six foot skinny guys who are motivated and and, and not doing something incredibly wrong you know I, I was doing a lot of things that I've changed but um, when I say wrong some people are out there like oh if I don't train on muscle groups two to three times per week I'm gonna not make any progress or if I if I don't do some low rep and some moderate rep and some high rep training make no progress like no you can be suboptimal and still make 99% of your gains as a novice you know I was doing uh, to training to failure every time I went in there training each muscle group once per week for a long time I make great gains, you know, it's it's only when you're getting to that point where Not everything works anymore and you're trying to push past the beginner stage where you really have to ask these questions that are Most of the time being asked by beginners. It doesn't matter for uh, in, in on the internet. So yeah, it's ironic Yeah, um, you know speaking of tr wanting to do things optimally and um, being overzealous um, and 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 maybe this could be a good transition point into other topics but you know I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Martin Burkhan's um, work from you know lean gains and he has a really cool, cool article that went viral called the marshmallow test and that's essentially about how in fitness and nutrition somehow it just seems to be a field where you're better off just getting the basics just, you know, do a couple of, you know, bullet points. I have to do this, this, and this, 
and then just forget about it and just go ahead and do other things with your life because things will fall into place and the more you think about these this stuff the harder it gets so i don't know to me it's just when i read that it hit me that it's just so true like overthinking this just destroys everything do you tend to see this with yourself even or your clients that overthinking oh, yeah. nutrition Oh yeah, I mean the the only positive thing that came out of me overthinking nutrition and training is that now I <laughs> I know what I know, um, but from a pure just if I didn't want to become a researcher or a, uh, a basically a a continuing education provider for coaches and 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 and, uh, and all the things that I do uh, or teacher. Um, that wouldn't have benefited me at all. If I just wanted to be the athlete, if I just wanted to be the best powerlifter or bodybuilder I could be, that was only harmful because it, 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 it got me off track and onto random tracks for, for sometimes years of, of kind of following the wrong approach because I, I read myself into it without enough foundational knowledge, you know? Uh, and this is something that I deal with on literally a daily basis with my own clients. And with the, the times I, I guess lecture or when I was teaching more regularly is that whole paralysis by analysis or people just being delving into the information overload. And, and because they haven't yet developed critical thinking or a foundation level of knowledge, it's all in the same playing field. So someone new to this might take an article by, you know, a random, you know, muscle and fitness or flex magazine article and then an article by, uh, you know, someone who's well respected in the evidence based community. and they're the same, you know. So it's just like which, which ten commandments do I follow? Am I, am I a should I be a, a Jew or a Christian or a, or a Muslim or a Hindu? It's, 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 there's no, there's no way for them to develop a, a way of looking at it. So so they just ask me like, uh, do I need to be doing short rest periods or not? Because I don't know. So um, what I'm often doing with uh, my clients is trying to teach them basic principles and very very fundamental critical thinking skills. So that they can get that kind of BS detector, so that they aren't just lost in this abyss of information that's on the internet. Um, and as an athlete, you're right; it is about consistency overall. I mean, consistency is 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 like if there was a, you know a horse race. Consistency, if it's the name of this horse, it's out here, and all the other principles are here, you know. Um, and this is proven time and time again when you simply see really good lifters and really good bodybuilders who are just older. And they're in the 30s, you know, uh, or 40s even, and um, and yeah, and us knuckleheads in our, our 20s, and I'm speaking myself in the past tense, just worrying about all these details that we a we don't understand, and b don't have as large of an impact as we make them out to be, uh, and then getting into these ridiculous piss, pissing matches online that just make make enemies and don't make us any bigger, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it. I don't know. It's so many beautiful points that you brought up right there, and I don't even know which one I should go with. For, first <laughs> of all, <laughs> for, first of all, um, I, I watched a, like a Q and A kind of series with you, and someone asked you about the ultimate diet of Lyle McDonald, and um, you said like, "Well, sure, you can live that kind of lifestyle when all your life is revolving around okay, keto." carb load, depletion workout, hit session, whatever. And and the person you were talking to asked you like, okay, so do you think that only people who need that kind of craziness in their lives should follow that diet? And you said like, no, no. Those people who need that kind of intensity should find balance in their lives. 
and and I, and you said that you're speaking from experience. So, are you a bit of an addictive personality when it comes to nutrition and, and training? Uh, yeah, I mean, easy way to answer that is I'm a competitive bodybuilder. I mean, there there yeah. aren't there aren't wholly sane competitive bodybuilders out there. I mean, we're talking about people who I I have spent nine months. Um, weighing and tracking food and, and to be honest it was actually more like five years it was just nine months I was very precise not eating out um, hitting a specific target for protein carbs and fat every day doing a certain amount of cardio every week training as hard as I could despite the fact that I'm very hungry increasing my cardio over time decreasing my calories practicing posing uh, and then eventually the payoff for all of that is for two 10-minute periods for me to shave my body put you know this black muddy goop and then flex on stage in a speedo so it's that is insane you know and and it, and and as much as it is you know it's like I love it I don't know why it's just who I am so I am definitely uh, like like many of my um, stage flexing brethren very naturally OCD if I if I train myself um, well, at least at least in the realm of bodybuilding, I, I'm I'm probably more relaxed person outside of that, but that's where it really kind of fosters. Have I trained myself to be a bigger picture thinker, uh, to take a more balanced approach to life because it has allowed me to keep bodybuilding and and be healthy and happy in life? Definitely, but I went through it in in the in an unhealthier way first to understand that. So definitely, I naturally am am that way for sure. Yeah. Um... Is it, it, it's interesting that, um, it, and there's a couple of questions I want to ask you about this because I the reason why I loved your interview with Danny Lennon, uh, SigmaNutrition.com, everybody has to check that out because it will, it will change your life <laughs> if you're into nutrition and, and fitness because uh, I remember you describing how a contest prep diet, um, you develop these behaviors of just being very, very meticulous with your tracking and measuring and everything. And... It's it's just incredible to me because um, we know you you I'm, I'm sure you know that uh, it's it's kind of shown that nutrition labels and stuff are like twenty percent off at times. It's not accurate, and if you're eating different foods every day, then you could be consistently off by a couple of hundred calories. So, do you think that this very meticulous tracking and measuring is more about that kind of control mechanism or? That psychological, hundred percent, definitely. Um, it is uncomfortable to. Well, here's the thing. So people who are drawn, and I'm making some some generalizations. Some people will be like, "No, that's not me," but that's okay. Um, people who are drawn to things like physique, sport, uh, and even athletes in general, there is typically an element of of, of a need for control. Um, and if you look at people with eating disorders, often they're developed in a situation where that person, either as a young adult or when they're a child, did not have control. And one of the things that almost all of us can control is what we do with our food. Even if we we aren't given the food we want, or if uh, you know we're we, the food access is, is different than we might expect in a normal family, you can always say, "I'm not going to eat it." You know, like I'm that that's you're taking your stand. That that's a um, a coping mechanism for for many. Uh, people who are end up with an eating disorder, and and not that an eating disorder is exactly the same as contest prep, but there are some parallels, and um, and in many cases, bodybuilders are drawn to control, and measuring and tracking each variable, it feels good, uh, and it makes them feel like they've ticked off all the boxes. Um, 
that doesn't go away. I, I don't think that that need fully goes away. It can be managed. It can be made more healthy. And with uh, a good awareness of what boxes are actually should be ticked off, you can shift those the focuses to, to different things. Like instead of focusing on, I've got to eat eight meals a day. Therefore, I have to bring Tupperware with me, and therefore I can't hang out with my friends. And you know, certain boxes create problems, right? But if I give someone a different set of boxes to tick that are a based on you know, physiology and, and, and that, that it's relevant to, to what your goals are and, and more accurate, fantastic, but also that allow you to have a healthy, you know, psychosocial relationship with the world, um, all of a sudden you can avoid some of those behaviors. But I'm still having them tick boxes because it, it's kind of like I'm, I'm using a different operating system that, that's more efficient and it's better for the machine, but it's still the same computer. You know, if I'm using that analogy of, of our brains kind of having some programming that's very difficult to change. And it's not my role to change someone's programming. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. Um, but on the flip side of that, obviously, the, to get consistent data, uh, the more controls, the better. You know, there's a reason why scientists are in many ways, scientists do the same thing with a group that bodybuilders do with themselves. They control as many variables as possible to get an outcome. And then when something, uh, you know, doesn't go the way they are, they, they're able to isolate it. Um, and that's what more experienced bodybuilders do is they don't change everything all at the same time. And they, that's one of the reasons they're very meticulous outside of that. And then as a coach, it's kind of a blend of these two things. I'm safeguarding the needs of the athlete, uh, you know, psychologically, as you were bringing up. And then I'm also trying to control variables so I can figure out if something does or doesn't work, what's going on. So it is a, a balancing act. Like, definitely it's true. Like, not only are food labels inaccurate, um, but your energy expenditure very so much day to day. So the macros that we might have put on a pedestal as these are the targets, you, you kind of have to realize like if my energy expenditure on a day to day basis changes by 500 calories, then why are, are, are these the macros? And so it's both me saying, right, I want you to hit these macros consistently because then that's a consistent variable, but also realize don't put them on too much of a pedestal. Here are some tools, you know, to, you know, to, to revert to just calories and protein rather than macros or uh, trade fats for carbs, or here's how you work in alcohol. I give them some tools, but I control that variable to whatever's reasonable, and then that allows me to make better decisions going down the line while also giving them tools so that it's not detrimental. Um, but at the same time, you can't just be completely loose with it all um, because A, that, that doesn't give this person that, that sense of control that's there in the first place, and B, it doesn't allow you to really know exactly what's happening when things stop working. So there is an element where you, you do need to have that, that structure, um, but having the structure that makes sense rather than the one that is purely slaved to your psychology uh, is, is probably a healthier long-term approach and can help the person retrain and think differently so that they can uh, you know, compete in a healthier and healthier way over time. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I remember, I mean, you mentioned this a couple of times that your first season, um, you you didn't have a plan of getting out of that kind of mentality and and you didn't have a big strategy set up and, and you experienced some horrible weight gain after the competition. And you mentioned this a couple of times and I was trying to find that story somewhere written down on the internet, but I just couldn't find it. So would you would you mind telling that story? Like, how, how did that happen? You know, it happens to most bodybuilders, I would say, their first season, or, or most 
stage physique competitors, right? Um, I had a very meticulous plan for how I was going to actually die down for the show. Uh, to my credit, I, I did pretty good for a first season. I didn't have a, a great physique at the time. I'd only been training for two, three years. Um, and I didn't get completely shredded, but I definitely showed up looking like I, I belonged on stage. And it took me from uh, January to May. So I dieted January, February, March, April. I dieted five months, which at that time, you know, 2007, when uh, there wasn't the same kind of push for uh, a more intelligent approach to it, that was considered a very long prep. Uh, now it's kind of like when I, when I hire someone five months, I'm like, oh, you better be really lean to start. You know, it's not very long, um, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, so I had a plan to get there. My plan to get out was, well, I've always been fine with it. I'm naturally a skinny kid. I've never had, like, I don't even know how to get fat. Uh, like, <laughs> so whatever. My, my plan is going to be a list of restaurants, you know. Um, but I didn't I have any way to know the extreme drive for overconsumption of food um, and that, that, that swing back effect where you can actually overshoot your fat levels, um, the amount of, of stress that I'd be under trying to diet down, uh, a lot of it unneeded by the way I was approaching things. I was doing a lot of wacky stuff, like I wouldn't combine fats and carbs sometimes, and I had a food list of about maybe eight foods that I would eat, and I was eating maybe six or seven meals a day, um, and all that on top of a pretty hectic schedule and, and, and life in general, um, and I was a wreck by the time I got off stage. And it just turned into basically a uh, recurring binge episodes. And I would try to then have low days to try to you know make up for the binge day. And eventually, I just gave into it. I was like, I'm. It's more stressful for me to try to manage the fact that I'm binging all the time. I'm just gonna just gonna eat until I'm not not hungry anymore. Unfortunately, uh, eating until I wasn't hungry anymore meant that two months later I'd put on 48 pounds. And I looked up one day and I was like. I competed at 178 pounds, and now I'm 226. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I had never been 226 pounds in my life. Uh, the heaviest I'd, I think I'd ever been was uh, maybe 205, 210. So I, I managed to put 15, 20 pounds on more than when I started my diet just five months prior. So in two months after the diet was over. So people had heard who I hadn't seen in a while, you know, I'm meeting up with you know, friends from high school, and, and they're like, oh, I heard you did a show two months ago. And they look at me like, did you really do a show two months ago? <laughs> you know, like, because I, I looked like um, maybe a, a lineman in, in American football rather than someone who just did a show uh, only only in May, and it was July. So, it was bad. Yeah, and, you know, chills are just going down my throat. Like, I mean, to be honest, I cannot really even laugh about this because I – the leanest I've ever been in my life was like 8% body fat. And, you know, it was below my set point that I was hungrier than normal, nothing really pathological. But I remember that, you know, I had a bigger appetite and some days I went way over and I started going up and, you know, my, you know, abs started to be less visible and stuff. And it was just to wake up after a day of kind of justified little binge eating to wake up the next day and going through the stress and just looking soft and watery. I cannot imagine that like going from 5% of, I don't know, or even lower body fat percentage to up to like technically, I guess, overweight. How is the, like, it was interesting, you know, it's a slightly different psychology than, you know, I run into a lot of people who, who for a large portion of their life before they even got uh, interested in competitive bodybuilding have been very focused on 
uh, looking lean and they're always trying to stay lean and, and, and they go through these kind of periods and they, they'll look up and they contact me because maybe four years out of the five years of training, they've been in a cutting state or trying to maintain a very low body fat. Uh, that I see a lot. Um, but uh, other people who get into bodybuilding, they have been trying to gain weight for, forever, 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 and they don't necessarily have that background. So it's a huge surprise uh, when they when they when they deal with that. And it's not necessarily losing my condition or putting on fat that really freaked me out, um, because I never really was concerned about my body image that much. I got into lifting weights um, at a, at a, from an odd kind of place. You know, it wasn't necessarily like. I'm not happy with my body. I need to change it. It was more like, I'm not happy with my life. I need to do something. I just fell in love with it. Um, so, so for me, it, it, it was, it was much more the mental side of it. The fact that for the first time in my life, I couldn't control what I wanted to eat. I did not want to binge. I did. I, I was clearly doing something I did not like, and I just felt completely out of control. And you can imagine for someone who is drawn to control to do a bodybuilding show, the stress of feeling like you can't control something that you can control for five months. Like I, I would, would, you know, I weighed out my peanut butter to the gram and now I can't only eat two slices of pizza. I have to eat the whole pizza. Like that made me feel weak. That made me feel like I was a fraud bodybuilder. It made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Uh, like I had a eating disorder and I probably technically did for a little while there. Um, so the, the emotional state was more related to like, what the hell is wrong with me? I feel like I'm crazy, um, and just uh, just lack of control. And I, I think that that was the big one. It really just felt like I I didn't get to choose where my life was going, and uh, and that that was not a comfortable feeling for me at all. Um, one of the things that helped me get out of it was actually reading about the Minnesota semi-starvation study, and the which is for those who don't know, in in the 40s, uh, Ansel Keys did a study, a famous researcher. Uh, on how to get people who had uh, starved, so like we're talking POW and even Holocaust survivors, uh, back to a healthy body weight. So putting a bunch of men on half of the calories they needed to maintain weight for six months straight in a controlled condition. So they were basically locked up so they couldn't do it. It's not the kind of thing that would pass an ethics board today. Um, but it, it's one of the, the pivotal pieces of research that has informed us about uh, what happened to people's diet. And there was some wacky stuff that happened. Like some people became professional chefs after the study was over. Uh, one guy apparently, I think, cut off his finger. I could be misquoting at a certain point in the study. And he, that's how he got out of it. Um, there were people who broke out of the controlled conditions they were in and, and binged at like a, basically a commissary kind of thing. Um, everyone was showing signs of, at the time, the way they diagnosed, because there's different diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. So everyone at the time could have been diagnosed for um, anorexia. I don't know if that's still the case based on the current diagnostic criteria, but it showed that some of the things that we see as a d eating disorder aren't just the behavior, they're the where you get to physiologically. And, and all of a sudden it started to make sense. I was like, yeah, I, I'm more focused on food than anything else in my life. Like I'll be talking to my wife and then I'm like, yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm, I have no idea what you just said because I'm thinking about lunch. I know it's coming up, you know. <laughs> So the, the food focus and the, the lack of control really started to make sense when I read about someone, this group of guys going through the exact same thing I did, a six-month period or almost six-month in my case of getting down to as lean as your body will let you get uh, and then, you know, seeing what happens, you know, and, and I saw the same thing they did uh, and I, I just happened to 
to uh, you know to have the benefit of a modern society where I could look it up on Wikipedia and and feel a little less crazy, which was actually extremely helpful. And I was able to get my my proverbial shit together after that. Yeah. Um, obviously, this made you a, a better coach. Um, but do you think it changed your relationship to to food and you know things like that? Yes, and I would say it took me until maybe three years ago before I got back to what I would say would be a, a, a naturally healthy relationship with food. And I'll explain what I mean by kind of telling a story. So uh, I started dieting for that show in January 2007. That's when I started tracking nutrients, weighing foods, tracking my macros for the first time. I didn't actually stop tracking my macros until 2012. So mm -hmm. that was five years of, of weighing and tracking foods. It doesn't mean I would have, it doesn't mean that I, I didn't go out to eat with my wife or eat out on holidays or take days off tracking the food um, or revert from macros to just calories or maybe make a 48-hour window where I could hit it. But I was always tracking. And when I could, I would weigh it out. Um, and uh, in 2012, I kind of realized, you know, I'm going to be moving to a new country. I'm not going to have access. And I had a discussion with my wife, and she was like, you know, you're, you're great about doing it in a way that doesn't affect me. But just the fact that you're doing it, to be honest, I don't think it's necessary. And it's kind of weird. And I went, you know, it is kind of weird. I, that is, you know, I, I, it's fine for me. I'm making it happen. But, but like, you know, Berto, Jeff... Brad, you know, my, my, my colleagues, they're like, you know, we don't track macros to that degree in the off season. You know, we, we keep it in check, you know, but do you, do you really think you need to weigh out your oats every morning? That kind of thing. Like, do you not know what a bowl of oats should look like? You know? Um, <laughs> so now I saw, so I got to New Zealand. I was like, you know, do I really need to do this? You know, I, I, I've heard that the body actually has a way to regulate body weight. I heard it's called like hunger and satiety. Wouldn't it be nice <laughs> if I can actually start to use those signals again? So for the last three years, I have just been eating as I want and just uh, basically keeping mindful of the things that I habitually don't keep in place in the off-season, which is under-eating because uh, I get to a certain point and I just lose my hunger. Like right now, I'm maintaining about uh, 201, 202, reasonably lean. But that, if I try to get any heavier than that uh, or even try to maintain that, I just kind of basically what will happen is I'll end up just cyclically accidentally cutting because I, I lose my hunger signals. So I have to ensure that I eat enough, and I have to ensure that I get enough protein in. So I track a few things, and to be honest, if you track for five years, you can't not know where your calories and macros are roughly. Like I can always tell you about where I'm at for the day, and sometimes I'll check it, um, and, and I'm always right. Like for example, I'll give you two examples to show you what five years of macro tracking does to your ability to kind of see the zeros and ones in the matrix kind of thing. Um, a buddy of mine had uh, a yam on his desk, and I said, hey, I think that's, or it's called a kumra here. I said, I think that's 63 grams. And he was like, what? I was like, I bet you that that's about 63 grams. And he was like, shut up. He put it on the scale, and it was 62 grams. So, <laughs> and then, and then he did, I, did, I did it again just to show that it wasn't like a, uh, like a, a magic trick, like the, just a fake thing. It, was, it, was just, it wasn't a fluke. Um, and then also, an, another example would be I did a, uh, I participated in a study for, a 16-week diet tracking study. We used MyFitnessPal and tracked, and um, it started with a four-week baseline period. And the the researcher who I was working with um, was like, was like, we're just going to track your baseline calories, and you'll come in, and then we'll go from there." And I said, "You know, I think I'm probably taking in about 27, 2800 calories on average, and I bet I get about two grams per kg of protein." And he said, "Okay, well, we still got to track." And I said, "Okay, sure." So at the end of the four weeks, it comes back 
average calories are 2741. My protein intake <laughs> is 174, which is just barely under. I was at 90 kg, so was, I was so I, I I can't not know where I'm at, but I'm not chucking everything on the scale. I eat anywhere between two to four meals a day. I eat out as much as I want, so I'm actually using the skills I learned rather than let them be in kind of like a crutch or training wheels that I just don't need anymore. And that is something that I actually could encourage my athletes to do in the off season is get down to tracking the minimal amount of variables to be consistent rather than all of the variables, which is more appropriate just for contest prep. You know? Yeah. It's, it's two quick points I want to make off of that is, is one of them is I think if, um, if we're, we're just, when we're talking about flexible dieting, uh, I guess that's all cool and fine. But I think for a lot of people, the more you include these quote-unquote junk foods, the more import, the more accurate you have to be with your measuring because the less you can rely on your natural satiety signals, right? That's a great point. I mean, the foods that we consider quote-unquote junk, uh, they are a component, not all of the obesity epidemic, because they increase satiety more than they blunt it by eating it. So people tend to overeat. And they're packed with calories. You know, when you have a really, really high fat and high sugar item, the average person, even with some nutritional knowledge, will guess and they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's probably 200. They're like, no, that's that's a 600 calorie cookie. And you're like, what? You know, so it, it makes you more likely to be off and you can't trust your natural signals as much. So you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's when people talk about or First of all, I think. Do you think because you're you're just saying that you're you're losing your appetite? Me, for example, I don't think that's possible for me. Like you just need to put the right types of foods in front of me, and and I will eat them like to the last bit. And like the amount of food I can pack down is just incredible, especially compared to my size and what you would think. And do you do you think that um, it's kind of a, a funny question, but do you think that the people who are best at cutting and just making weight very well and make it big essentially in bodybuilding like yourself or people who just don't like to eat that much in general not necessarily uh definitely not necessarily like uh, a great example of someone who's just shredded and can maintain shredded is alberto nunez but mm -hmm. alberto was a fat 250 pound guy at one point and he forced himself to get there and to do so knowing that this guy's tdee is so high he was eating like 6,000, 7,000 calories a day for a long time. I mean, maintaining a fat, bloated, 250-pound body when you're, you know, 5'9 is, is not easy. Um, and uh, and, and I, th I think if you just totally hated eating and didn't care, it, would, it, it, it wouldn't be that easy either. So you get, you get people who are – you get all types. And, and uh, to be honest, because I've worked with people who were, were former – formerly obese as teenagers and people who have always been skinny. They have different psychologies or tendencies because everyone's, you know, they're a unique person, but they have different tendencies that you will see and different struggles. Um, but there, there are, like, if you look at it, the classical, like, very, very successful bodybuilders, you'll, you'll get from both backgrounds, man. Uh, it's just uh, different problems and different hurdles that they have, for sure. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I heard that that he was two fifty pounds before, but I thought that was a joke or something. But then... <laughs> no man, he was he was uh, he had no taper. It was just kind of like like fridge body. It was good. It was pretty funny. Wow, that's incredible. Because yeah. for those who don't know, that guy is pretty much known for his vascularity. That like it's almost superhuman. <laughs> it's yeah, it is crazy. He, 
Yeah, he's exactly. I mean, he, he competes at uh, 5'9", 160 pounds, and some of the best conditioning that you, you'll see on a natural bodybuilding stage, uh, or any bodybuilding stage for that matter. Conditioning is not really about whether you're natural or not. Um, but anyway, so to look at him and go, wow, you were 90 pounds heavier, you know, and to, to think like not not 90 pounds of muscle. I mean, he, it's, yeah, you know, like yeah. as much muscle as you can get from getting that fat. But, you know, but, and, you know, you wouldn't keep all that lean body mass dieting down, obviously, but I would say probably 60, 70 pounds more body fat, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's amazing. Um, just before we start wrapping up, uh, there was another topic because you just mentioned natural. <laughs> mm. So that, that brought to mind um, that, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me that there is kind of these two camps on the internet, and one of them is kind of like, just filling up pages and pages of forum discussions about who is netty and who isn't and there's another camp who is like whenever that comes up they're just like like why do you even care who who gives a shit like why do you even care so i don't know where where do you kind of stand on that um i think the the, the why do you even care camp is predominant dominated by people who are so tired of the same stupid debates um because they don't lead anywhere, and, and, and most of the time they are just, they're just examples of people's own personal biases. Um, like, if, if people wanted this, like, there's there was a point where it just got to this crazy ridiculous thing where people would just um, just call out any natural bodybuilder, and then there was like, you know, there are people who would post, like, you know, there's no such thing as natural bodybuilding. Like, it's all uh, just guys who are on a little bit of gear, and, and to me, like, like, why? Like that, that's, I just don't understand like the, uh, the, the, the debate got so extreme. There was either your complete conspiracy theorists on one side or the let's not talk about it at all. This is not an issue. You guys are just haters thing. And, and it's like, you know, they're, this, this is obviously ridiculous. You know, uh, the idea that, that, that basically the people are just drinking steroids out of the tap water and anyone with a decent, decent physique who picks, picks for weight is probably on gear is, is uh, kind of insane. But um, but not want to talk about it at all. It's primarily a reaction to that, and not a useful one. Because I think where the the problem that stems out of that is that people who are new to the game don't really understand what is a reasonable physique to try to attain, or uh, you know, they they don't know what the truth is. When you have people who are completely uninvolved in natural bodybuilding uh, and are just just looking at physiques and have really no idea, most of the time they're either very young and frustrated with their progress. Or potentially, there's someone who's been on gear for their whole life and doesn't have any really idea what they could have done without uh, steroids. Who are who are making these comments? Like, of course, if this guy's as big as me and I've been on gear for ten years, then he's got to be on, on gear. Well, it's like, dude, you started when you're 17. Maybe, maybe you would have had a, a decent physique without it. Or, or, dude, you only are 17. How the hell would you know what, what someone could accomplish? And uh, so it's um, the debate is, is is not very useful in any way. Um, and I don't think people show enough humility. Like, like if someone is borderline, you know, and you're not sure, and you dis well, or you shouldn't be sure. But but someone comes in there and says that person is definitely on gear. I'm going to destroy that person. I'm going to make a video. I'm going to call them out. Like, what if you're wrong? You just destroyed someone's reputation. That's like you know, the guy who's sitting in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Like, that's really not cool. You know, like in my mind, it's like if there is a a possibility, if there is a, a hint of a doubt, like. Maybe we should show some humility because that could be very harmful to someone who's who, who might actually be natural. I, I've seen it 
many, 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 many times, people who I am 100% convinced that they're natural have been, you know, drugged through the mud and their reputation has been tarnished based on absolutely nothing factual except some loud person's opinion. And you can't really come back from that because, you know, like, you like, like you heard, yeah, I heard that rumor that Alberto Nunez is 250 pounds. Like, that exists in all types of things you hear on the internet. Like, I, I heard that rumor that the X guy was, was not natural. Like, and it might have been completely just based on nothing or even trolling. And now it's just the stigma the person has because there was some guy who was just convinced or gal or whatever, you know. So I, I think it's a very frustrating debate because of the form it takes. But when it's intelligent, it can be quite interesting. Sorry, quite interesting. Like uh, Casey Butts has done a great job at, at looking at um, what is some of the natural muscle potential out there. And, and I'd like to think I, I, I did a, a nice contribution to that with uh, – yeah. The article I did it at Alan, no, for, for the AARR for Alan Aragon, which is um, he made free. He thought it was important enough. Um, so I think when it's intelligent, it's a very cool topic. So that's why it has so much interest is because it is, it's relevant to people to know what's reasonable to get to. And a lot of people don't want to use steroids. So the, the normal people on the cover of the magazines isn't relatable to them. Um, and they also can feel very betrayed when they finally find out that, oh, my God, everyone I've been looking up to is on gear. So there's high levels of emotion, high levels of interest, and it produces a very non-productive discussion. So it creates fighting. So it just kind of elevates into volcanoes, but none of it's useful. So I think when it is intelligent, it can be a very uh, cool discussion. And I actually like it. It's just that now that people are, are uh, willing to call anybody out, or just, the, I guess it's not even people. You know, the internet makes it seem like the people, the loudest voices seem like they're, they're, they're more people than they are. There's it's a small minority of very loud, opinionated people, and it sometimes to me it feels like it because I'm in the natural bodybuilding scene that it's everyone's hating on us, and that that's not even true. It's just uh, a lot. Yeah, are, are you are you familiar with the site called nettyornot.com? Yeah, that's 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 that is a. Uh, it's almost I, I don't I don't even know if it's serious. It's so it's so ridiculous that yeah. site. I, I mean that's that's just I mean all that does is like okay, let's take your stats compared. To compared to someone who we knew know use drugs and if it's even close then you're in gear like no question I oh yeah and, and and then make up the stats half the time anyway and then just make shit up it's it's great now that that website i i've actually always thought it's it's not real that it's people just trolling but yeah if it is then that's I mean, kind of sad so it's unbelievable yeah, yeah it's do, do, like do you you guys within the community that, that's what I always wondered. Like, do you know about each other? Like, do you discuss this between each other? That, like, yeah, bro, by the way, like, yeah, of course I'm telling that to the public, but, yeah, I'm on gear. Like, that, does does that happen at all? <laughs> I, I mean, maybe in a different community than I'm in, but, I mean, I, I come up in, 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 like, everyone I know is just a bunch of guys who love lifting weights but aren't really comfortable with the idea of, of breaking the law or taking what they you know, no, I, I, I didn't mean you guys specifically, but just like in general in the yeah, bodybuilding um, community. Right. You know, to be honest, I, I'm sure the, I, like, I, I guarantee you, like, maybe you hear it, like, if you go to, like, the Olympia, like, people ask questions like, hey, are you natural? Like, 100%, and everyone laughs, like, he, 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 you know, or there are some IFBB pros who will very much openly talk about their drug use and, and other guys, like, you know, like, if you heard interviews with Jay Cutler, he'll talk about, like, you know, obviously, you know that bodybuilders have to do certain things, and he'll he'll talk around it without ever admitting it, because um, mm -hmm. I, I guess he feels like he can't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I in 
in the groups of, of guys who and gals who are openly using anabolic steroids or it's very clear and they're all doing it, you know, like at national level. I remember, I shouldn't say names, but I met a, a high, very high level NPC competitor trying to get his pro card at a, a supplement um, store. And he said, you know, I asked him a few questions and he stopped me. And he said, just, just, to, I mean, just to make sure we're on the same page. Like I'm an advanced level bodybuilder. I take a lot of anabolic steroids. So just so you know that. And then he kept talking. And I was just like, uh -huh. oh, that, that's, that's probably the most open I've heard it. Like I, I knew that I assumed, but he stated it just like, you know, just so you know, like, let's not get too caught up on like my opinion on creatine. I want you to know I'm on, I'm on all the gear, you know, kind of thing. So <laughs> that is something that is definitely discussed in the, the, that, that community. And if you were to go on, you know, certain message boards and stuff like that, you, you can see it. But at the same time, in in the United States and other countries where it's illegal, they're they're very guarded about it because they they could be, uh, you know, prosecuted. But um, but yeah, like in the in the natural bodybuilding community, um, you you'd be ostracized immediately. Like if if someone came up and it was like, hey Eric, you know, I'm actually on gear, I'd be like, whoa, like that's why are you cheating? You know, like I I don't care if Ronnie Coleman's on gear, that's great. They have they have their level playing field. We we try to have our level playing field. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's not a, as much as some guys think there is, there's not a little secret community of us all harboring this conspiracy that man just never, never come out like all conspiracies. So, yeah. And, 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 and it's, people don't realize like how big of a deal it becomes after you reach a certain level of fame and reputation. I mean, for example, you know, Lane Norton is, uh, is well, He's discussed obviously a lot on on different forums and whatever message boards and stuff. Um, and I mean, for a guy of his reputation and for what he's done for the community and and what a name he is, I mean, I, and, and and the funny thing is like even like what whatever whatever is the case, like he has done so much for the community. Like his advice is good. We know he preaches the good word. And but if it turned out about him. I mean, that would be like like as big of a deal as Lance Armstrong. Like it would destroy the community like in some ways, probably. Definitely. No, it would be a big blow to the community. And I mean, and also think about it from, from his standpoint. I mean, this is a guy who pursuing his PhD now has it, an active scientist uh, living in the United States, competing in, in the IPF worlds and, and, and USAPL, you know, um, being off-season drug tested, being tested in competition, competing in the IFPA, which is polygraph and urine tested. I mean, the lengths he would have to go to to evade all that detection, he would invariably eventually get caught if he was on something. People say, you know, Lance Armstrong didn't get, you know, he, he didn't get caught. Like, yes, he did. That's how we know he's on gear. They had a blood sample from him from years back, but they finally tested again and he got caught. <laughs> you know, yeah. that you, people do eventually get caught. And knowing that, the amount of risk, I mean, you could, you could get your, you, you, could, you could be banned from the scientific community, the academic community, never be able to compete as a powerlifter, never be able to compete as a bodybuilder, and, and lose your job. All the clients you, you, you train, all the articles you write, I mean, for him to do that, it would be the dumbest, most short-sighted risk ever. It just, it just wouldn't make any sense. Why would someone risk that, you know? Um, so I think people don't think of it sometimes from that side. Like, I can't even imagine... Knowing that I, I uh, you know, I could, I'm randomly tested, I could be randomly tested, you know, as, as an IPF athlete in the off season, uh, and I'm tested in competition, 
uh, I'm polygraph tested, that, that failing any of those pretty much is a career ender and potentially, depending on how much of my identity is wrapped up in me as a bodybuilder, a identity ender. I mean, that would be like, I'd be worried if, 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 if someone in that level of stature cheated and got caught about suicide, you know, I really would. Uh, so to me, I just can't even see like why, why someone would, would do that. Um, you know, some, now, now that's different than someone who doesn't compete in anything, uh, isn't an academic and just has a YouTube channel. It's, it's they're never going to get caught. It's just a, uh, it's just what they say on, on a channel, like I'm natural. And, and then it gets some more clicks and views. Great. Unless someone like sneaks into their room at night and like takes a blood sample and can prove it. Like, you know, there's, there's no risk, but, uh, there's a huge risk when you're doing that, like you said, to the community and, and to the person. So it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense, like why anyone would, would, would risk that. I, even if you didn't think you were going to get caught, the fear of getting caught would be like just the most stressful thing yeah. in the world on a day-to-day -day basis. Although I guess if you did it like years and years back and like then you're but kind of reap the benefits of it and now you're natural, I guess you could get away with it. But, but yeah. Oh, so, I, I, well, you're not really getting away with it. Like there's a, a time drug-free, like in the natural bodybuilding, you need to be drug-free for, depending on the organization, you know, five to seven years. And there's many, many, many bodybuilders who have, you know, went down a pathway and went, you know, that's, that's not for me, I want to be natural, and, and here they are, you know. Um, like it's very commonly well known that I used over-the-counter pro-hormones in 2005, 2006, before I was even considering competing in bodybuilding. Found out what, what the deal was of natural bodybuilding, had to compete in certain organizations, stopped taking them, and, and then had to wait, you know, years before I compete in INBF and things like that. Um, and I, I love the idea that there's this some, that somehow the, the steroid you took years ago are giving this massive benefit. Um, and they will cite these studies on like uh, changes, changes in satellite cells and things like that. But there's never been a study that's looked at how big people are who once took steroids and but have been training for 15 years and then did. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a huge leap, you know. Um, to, to, to assume that what you're able to maintain with drugs is giving you a competitive advantage now. Um, is there a difference at the, the, the muscle cell level? Yeah. But does that mean that it actually translates into being able to lift heavier weights in competition or, or maintain you know, higher lean body mass uh, than you would normally? You could speculate, but I, having seen many, 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 many uh, bodybuilders who used to be on something and now seven, ten years later, they're, they're not. They they don't maintain the size, you know. They may have gotten to their natural potential a little faster or something like that, and yeah, that could be seen as a competitive advantage. But yeah, um, yeah. but in the end, uh, I think that is, and it's not like people plan to do that. Like I'm going to use gear from 2002 to 2005, and then I'm going to wait till 2012 to compete. You know, that's that's kind of you know I don't think people think like that. So yeah, well. Ted, thanks for that input. It was, um, yeah, it, I, I, th I think that's many good lessons for people to take away, like even just when they decide to go on a forum and, uh, you know, start a battle royale, whatever, <laughs> over who is Natty and who isn't. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, we're, I think we've just talked about over an hour, and I want to thank you so much for, for, for coming here. Uh, for the very end, um, I would like to to plug you as hard as you can. Uh, 
that's that, 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 okay, that, that sounded a bit weird. So so please. Um, <laughs> and it's just our first date. I love it. <laughs> so please uh, uh, tell us about that new book that you're working on and uh, where people will be able to find it and what it's about briefly. Awesome. So yeah, myself. Um, and uh, Andy Morgan and Andrea Valdez, the newest coach of 3DMJ, and Andy Morgan is a, a great fitness writer and, and uh, works with the people himself. Um, we're, we're collaborating on turning the muscle and strength nutritional pyramid and training pyramid, the pyramids I made on YouTube and our YouTube channel, uh, into books uh, that get really in-depth and give very, very practical advice and are useful to whether you're you know, a coach or an athlete who really wants to learn this stuff and, 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 and digs in quite deep. Um, we're going to be releasing them probably end of this month, potentially mid-November. They'll have their own website. It'll be like muscleandstrengthpyramids.com or something like that. But uh, they're not quite released yet, but we're definitely going to make the announcement on 3dmusterny.com, on my Facebook, on our YouTube channel. So it, it will not be unnoticed, and I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to, to promote it and get it out there so someone won't go, what, he wrote a book? So, But yeah, that's coming. Um, and then just always to check us out on our, our YouTube channel, uh, Team3DMJ, and... Uh, Facebook is very vibrant for us as well. Uh, the other guys have Instagram accounts. I don't. Um, and uh, also, if you're if you're interested in research, my my research gate. Perfect, cool. Thank you so much, Eric, for uh, giving an interview with uh, someone who has like five or six viewers at the at the moment. But hopefully, this will go viral because people deserve to see this awesome episode. So, thank you so much, and good luck with your PhD. Thank you very much, and you did a great job. I'm, I always love good questions. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think some really amazing knowledge and thoughts were shared by Eric. So if you like this episode, please go ahead and leave a rating on iTunes. Also, subscribe to this show to help it grow so that more amazing people like Eric can come onto this show and share some amazing knowledge with you guys. I hope you enjoyed this. It means a lot that you took the time and hung around with me up until now. Thanks, guys, really. See you all next time.